Welcome back, everybody, to the Uncensored CMO. Now, I've got a real treat for you in this episode for any sports fans out there. Now, I am a particular fan of Southampton Football Club, and any of you that have been watching football over the last year might know that about a year ago, Southampton went down to the biggest defeat in Premier League history, losing 9 0 to Leicester City. Now, roll on a year. When we recorded this episode, Southampton actually went top of the league for the very first time in their history and have been one of the informed teams over the last 12 months. And I really wanted to understand what have they done as a club to produce this performance. So I wanted to catch up with David Thomas, who is commercial director at Southampton, and put some questions to him and find out what have they done as a club to turn around the performance both on and off the pitch. How are they coping with the challenges of empty stadiums and and how do they raise sponsorship in a time when lots of brands will be cutting back? And how are they investing in the future? as well in future in terms of women's football or the youth team uh, and really creating a next generation football club. So this is a really fascinating conversation. It might be about football, but there is so much to learn from what Southampton do that you can apply to being a challenger brand. This is my conversation with David Thomas. So Southampton 2, Newcastle 0. Saints, top of the Premier League and the top of English football, albeit for a few hours maybe, for the first time since 1988. David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Great to be here. Great to be here. And just to clarify, I don't run it single-handedly. It's just so... so <laughs> yes. Although, although I'd like to, yeah. Indeed, indeed. And I think in my mind, I run the club, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had. We're all sat there in front of our TVs, aren't we, as yeah, fans yeah, yeah, going, no, you should play, play that player, move the formation. You know, if only we'd done that. Anyway. We're, we're all managers on our own sofas, aren't we? Listen, thank you so much for, for, for joining. So I, I'd like to start by taking you back just over a year ago, actually, to, and I hate to do this at the beginning of the podcast, just to remind you, but it was about a year ago, wasn't it, that we suffered that humiliating 9-0 defeat at the hands of Leicester. And yet, as we sit here today, we're fifth in the table. We're playing Newcastle this evening. It's the 6th of November for anyone listening by the time this goes out. And technically... We could be top of the table, but even just saying that, I feel terrible. I might have just jinxed it, but anyway. But listen, tell yeah, me. But I'm, I'm blaming you. If yeah, it, I know. I know. I feel this. I just feel this like this could go terribly wrong. But talk, what's happened in the last year since that defeat? And yeah, talk to me about that. I think, yeah, it's been a, an extraordinary year, really, for those that that aren't aware. Back last October, so a, a year ago. Had a pretty humiliating defeat in in the league against Leicester, and we lost. We don't really talk about it, but we lost nine nil. It was a record defeat, and since then, actually, it's probably been the making of us. It's been a, a really challenging year, obviously for for many reasons, and we'll come on to to talk about that. But from a football perspective, it it, it was a real sort of line in the sand moment, and. It could have broken us, but that that sort of saying, which is whatever doesn't break you, makes you stronger. And I think the way that we responded as a club demonstrates a lot of the the character of of Southampton Football Club and the culture that we have here. And I think many clubs and most people were expecting us to to fire the manager and do what, what everybody else does. And we didn't do that. And we didn't do that for good reasons, because one football match doesn't define you. And... But we did need to rebuild, and we had a couple of poor results after that as well. And for us, though, it was a real moment where we needed to come together. And one of our core values is about unity. 
and we came together as a group of players, but also players and staff across the, the whole club. And, and we needed to really believe in what we were doing, believe in what we call the Southampton way, which is our, our, our style of play, but also our, our overall strategy. And yeah, we needed to believe, get back to basics, believe in that, believe in, in who we are and how we play. And we're a good football team and we're a really good club. And once we started connect, reconnecting with that, then uh, the results started to come back pretty quickly. Yeah, and, and it's been a very impressive year, hasn't it? Even with throwing in something as dramatic as COVID, I think strangely I noticed that even particularly since we've been playing behind closed doors, the results have been particularly impressive. Is there anything, is there anything you put that down to as well? Yeah, I think for the nine games um, that we played post-lockdown at the end of last season, I think we ended up being third in the league behind Man City and Man United. And we're obviously fifth right here right now. I think there's a number of reasons, really. I think partly there's an element of, and we're seeing this across the whole league, actually, players being playing with without the shackles on, uh, really. They're playing without the, uh, fairly uninhibited, really, without the pressure of fans. And obviously fans are fantastic. You make a mistake or you go behind, you concede a goal, and atmosphere can really affect a player's performance. And when that just isn't there, I think that's what's, partly driving the, the high-scoring games that, that, that we're seeing now. But for us in particular, I think Ralph, I know, has, has really enjoyed playing behind closed doors because he's been really able to communicate to, to the players. And we have the privilege of going to the games yeah. and you can hear every word he says and the players, and he's telling the players what to do and you know, when to move and, they're res- and you see them responding. Whereas when you've got 30,000 people in the stadium, that's not possible. I think that's really definitely had a, had a positive impact. That is a fascinating insight, isn't it? Because it's like a controlled experiment. What happens when you remove the fans and, and, but you allow the manager's voice to be heard? What different, and it, that's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, maybe some clubs it hasn't worked so well because so, <laughs> I can actually hear the manager saying. Now you've got the dilemma of what happens when you put the fans back in. Yeah, yeah, it, no, no, exactly. Are going to return well, hope, to normal? Or, yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things for us is uh, Ralph has a really specific way of playing and it takes a while for the players to really understand it and we've seen it with new players when they join they do take a a good period of of adjusting that's why I think it's been really helpful for us where where people have been really able to respond to his direction and you're right what you're saying earlier about not sacking the manager because like you'd in most clubs I'm pretty sure would have done that after such a such a big defeat but all credit to Southampton for sticking and that consistency has really started to pay off. And I think consistency may be something in business as well that, that is underestimated as a quality that we were a bit too quick. It's like when I talked to lots of CMOs in my job and the, the average tenure of a CMO has become a little bit like a Premier League manager. It used to be four years, it's now 18 months and this kind of thing. And I think that's a general principle that consistency and finding the right form and sticking with it and not letting the defeats get you down I guess it's the old advice I remember meeting Eddie Jones actually when he was going through that amazing winning streak with the England rugby team and he was saying he said I'm always tough in victory and I'm always gentle in defeat because he said you're never quite as good as you think you were when you had that big victory you're never quite as bad as you think you were when you had that defeat and I thought that was fascinating it was almost the opposite kind of psychology that I expected, but he just said he'll go around and put his arm around the guys if they've had a defeat. And he said, when they have done brilliantly, that's when I just give them a little bit of feedback to say, you were amazing, but if you just work on that, you might be better. Because if they can take it, they're open to it. Which I thought was really interesting psychology. I, d- I think it's also an element of 
Yeah, it's, it's about the importance of strategy as well and having a plan. And, and that's as important on the pitch as it is off the pitch in, in terms of business. And if you believe in your strategy and you believe in what you're doing, and you believe in where you're going and how you're going to get there, then you're always going to hit a bump in the road. Yeah, and we're, we're hitting a pretty big bump in the road right here, right now, with, with yeah. obviously with COVID. But ultimately, we know that what the direction that we're heading in is right for us and everybody's behind it. So you can take a few knocks and ultimately a bad performance on the pitch and is only a blip. Um, so let's come to the business side of it, because I, th- I think you referred to COVID there, and, and, and that's one of the things I'm fascinated to ask you about, because I guess if you go back to the beginning of the year, you would have felt quite hopeful, you know, results starting to recover, the team gelling, pushing on, really exciting. And then an almost unprecedented global event removes all fans in the stadium, and who knows what's going on with TV rights at the same time. How on earth did you respond as a club to that? That's an unprecedented challenge. To face what did you have to do to ensure the survival of the club and keep things working yeah obviously every organization had had to adjust and and pivot and do that really quickly for us the as with many organizations the the primary uh, focus initially was around securing the the safety of, of our players and, and our staff but then pretty quickly we went into a, a period of okay goodness we're 400 nearly 400 people in the organization and how do you run an organization at arm's length virtually when you know we're so used to we've got two main locations at at the club we've got the stadium where all the corporate offices are and obviously where we play and then we've got the training ground and you're seeing people the whole time and you're running an organization of it's a people business when you then instantly have to trans uh, you know traverse that and, and do that virtually that caused considerable challenges and i think it really placed the focus on communication and and having to really think differently about how we communicate um, both internally and externally was was critical. But then, of course, obviously, there were some revenue streams that just stopped overnight and some that you had to try and protect. And, for instance, sponsorship, you had all of our partners. How do you how do you protect that revenue as best as you can? And some elements of it were uh, obviously, they were still realising the revenue, particularly when, or, or the, the value, sorry, when matches restarted. But the whole emotional connection of for our partners and, and our sponsors of coming to the games and being amongst the fans and that whole engagement element was just wiped out over, you know, overnight. So we had to try and think of new and different ways of overcompensating to add value where we weren't necessarily adding value in different ways previously but I think then whilst we were whilst we were then wrestling with how we you know keep the lights on and keep the business running I think that pretty quickly we we moved into a period of really going okay what's what's our role here and our responsibility within the wider community as a whole and I think what COVID did was really brought that into sharp focus for us as a leadership team, which is we have a fantastic foundation, which is our, our charitable organisation, and we're doing amazing work in, in the community every day. But the lockdown, first lockdown in particular, just really brought us into focus and going, OK, where can we really add more value? We've got real responsibility here as a key pillar of the community to give back and support where we can. And we initiated a number of initiatives where that we sort of wrapped up under the banner of what we called the Saints as One kind of campaign, but it was all about looking at different ways where we can add and give back and utilise the skill set of the club 
to add value. We had chefs that weren't all of a sudden weren't doing anything. Actually, we committed to to develop producing a thousand meals uh, a week and distributing those through yeah. uh, through our uh, partnership with Fair Share. We supported the NHS through delivering prescriptions to people at their at their homes. We started to obviously mental health has become a real challenge um, for for people and people feeling really isolated. We, we made thousands of calls, telephone calls out to particularly the elderly, so in the community and the most vulnerable in the community and um, uh, season ticket holders as well, the, the, elder, uh, the elder season ticket holders. There are lots of initiatives like that that really galvanised the club and really and everybody connected with it really to see, OK, yes, we've got to protect our business and our organisation, but we've also got to uh, support where we can. Oh, that, that's wonderful to hear. And it's interesting, actually, what, what I noticed in it, post-COVID, it was clear those businesses that were serious about taking action and helping, whether it's supermarkets or delivery companies switching their delivery force to get prescriptions out there and that sort of thing. It, it, it's, and I, th- I think the community really rewarded that as well. I think you could see in the response to Clap for Carers and stuff like that, how much it means when businesses and organisations step up and, and help. You know, that make a massive difference. What about the fans? Because obviously as the fan experience is very different now, isn't it? You have to watch on pay-per-view, you can't get to the stadium. And, and so much of the football experience is that feeling in, in the stadium with the fans and there's nothing to replace that. What have you done to try and keep the fans engaged and, and part of the journey? Yeah, of course, as we've already touched on it really in terms of the, import, the importance of communication. But in, in these times, in difficult, challenging times, you can't over-communicate. We just need to, needed to find new ways of, of engaging and particularly on match days when obviously that's a big part of the, the enjoyment of the game is the build-up to the match and what happens before and after. And So we've had to develop new content series effectively, pre- and post-match formats to engage fans and, and get them excited. But yeah, it, really it's about doing what we try and do best, which is particularly through our digital content, trying to be as engaging and entertaining as, as possible. But yeah, I, it, it's certainly been a challenge because yeah. how when, particularly when there was no football to talk about, it's yes. okay, right? <laughs> <laughs> Normally we're pretty good. We're on pretty solid ground when we talk about yeah. football. And when we didn't have that, we were having to think of new ways of engaging. Yeah, but, yeah it could um, be a bit more of a challenge, can't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, you talked, you touched on it earlier, but I'd love to come back to it in terms of the role of sponsors as well. Because if you take the traditional sponsorship model, it's about having your name on the shirt, isn't it? And being seen on TV and being associated with the players and that kind of thing. How do you think that your sponsorship strategy might evolve, I guess, in relation to COVID, but but more broadly as you evolve as a club? Yeah, I think it's, again, what COVID has done, it hasn't shifted our strategy, but it's probably brought it more into focus. And the reality is the world of sports sponsorship has really been transformed in the last five years, to be honest. And it really has shifted from the almost the old world of sponsorship, in, which is all about exclusion and just really about put your logo here and thanks very much see you in three years sign here into a much more inclusive world of the new world of of partnerships essentially we don't really even like the word sponsorship to be honest but really the journey that that we've been on um, uh, with that is about going okay for us it's about understanding the what our partners businesses are all about and working through a process with them to really identify, okay, 
this is where we can really add value and support your business objectives. But you can't do that unless you really get under the bonnet of, of, of our partners' businesses and really work through and identify where the potential gaps are and, where we, and, and what we can do. And we do that. We have a unique process that we go through that, that gets to that. And ultimately, we talk about our ambition with all of our partners is to, is to deliver positive impact for their businesses. And that, that positive impact differs for every partner, but it's entirely based on what their objectives are. So for some of our partners, it might be about actually developing empathy with fans. So when I think about one of our partners, the main partners, Virgin Media... They're all about getting on the side of fans and developing a relationship with them. So we've developed a whole strategy under the banner of what we call um, Super Saints, which is a number of initiatives that they undertake with our fans to really endear the fan base to the sponsor. And so that's one sort of more soft measure, whereas for other partners, it might be something really more sort of business focused. So Cufflink, one of our, our investment partners, the whole partnership is all focused around driving qualified leads to their website so that they can <laughs> then convert. So that's a very different strategy that we need to undertake with them. Kingfisher, on the other hand, is our beer partner. That's all about helping them to expand their distribution nationally and getting people to really stock their products. So every partnership is different and therefore everything that we do with our partners is different and how we activate but a lot of it comes down to, effectively, our partnerships are marketing-led propositions now. And, and it's all about how we can engage our, our fan base and sometimes a, a global football fan base with very creative and engaging content that, that we produce and uh, utilising our assets and sometimes our players to really engage a much wider audience and, and have that impact. But... That makes that makes a lot of sense. I remember when I used to run the Lucasay brand actually, and we went through the kind of transformation you just talked about. Where I think before it was a few million pounds a year, we'd invest in about sort of ten to fifteen sponsorships, and it was as you described, it'd be three five year deals, logo on the shirt or whatever, and literally we wouldn't even think about it beyond there we had someone's manager and that was fine and then we came up with a new strategy which was called made to move and it was we had this new purpose which is as humans we're all made to move as human beings sort of thing and, and exercise is good it's good for our health and obviously mental health and well-being and everything else like that and so we came up with a new plan which was basically every sponsorship was linked to how many people could you help us move <laughs> it was a simpler it was funny actually and it, we went down the list of all our partners and said are you able to inspire people to move there's this lovely moment where Anti Joshua, actually the heavyweight boxer, was one of our uh, one of our ambassadors. And on the day we announced this new strategy, he went for a run in the park and just tweeted, "Oh, I'm going for a run. Who wants to join me?" And then he had 380 people or something like that turn up. So we're like, "There we go. We got our first 380 people moving." It was, yeah, it was quite yeah, a yeah. moment, but it was well, even, the, the beauty of that is about, and I guess what our model is all about is a, is about having purpose led partnerships. That's what yeah. we talk about, and and the importance of that is that. Every single person within the club and within our partners' organisations are really clear about why that partnership exists and what we're trying to achieve and how we're going to achieve it. And quite frankly, we shouldn't do anything that isn't helping to achieve that purpose. And, and to close that loop then, the key element linked back, I think, again, to, 
COVID has brought it into sharp focus, but it was already there beforehand, was the importance of measurement and, and, and KPIs and being able to demonstrate a return on investment. And quite frankly, in an old world uh, football sponsorship world, we didn't need to do that. But as we all know, uh, every penny that a marketeer is spending now <laughs> um, it needs to be justified. And that's incumbent upon us as a rights holder to be able to help that our, our partners and the, the, the marketing departments justify the money that they're spending with us. I remember being in a very compromised position with the, the I think it was the F, we sponsored the England team on Lucas A. And the, the way the deal was structured is we, the, we paid more based on England's success. So I remember like cheering, I can't remember which championship was, we're in the semi-final. I'm going, this is going to cost me quite a few six figures if we win. <laughs> I can't remember. I think I might have had insurance taken out. Yeah, I think most, yeah, most, I was like, I'm most people the odds. insured <laughs> against it. But yeah. It was like, I remember the meeting where I sat down with the finance guy to say, if we spend £70,000 on insurance, I can mitigate against England winning the European Championships. I just thought, oh man. Oh, the irony. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it compromised me as an England fan. But anyway. Now, listen, I've always, obviously I've got to declare a bias here being a Saints fan. But as I look at our you know, performances over the last few years, I've always felt that we as a club always seem to over deliver based on our maybe our history or based on our kind of income levels or, or so on. Is that me as a fan, just like having rose tinted glasses? Or, or do you think that as, as a club, we're one of those clubs that can do more on less resources? I absolutely agree with, agree with that. Yes, yes, we are. And history's pro- proven that, I think. So you know, if you just look at on-pitch performance for a, for a club like Southampton, within the last seven years, we finished... 8th, 7th, 6th, 8th, had a couple of difficult years where we finished 17th and 16th and then last year we finished 11th. That's pretty extraordinary really when you look at the resources that, that we have compared to other clubs. You know, last season we beat Spurs, Chelsea, Man City. We're defying the odds in, in, in many ways but we'd also say when we look off the pitch that, that we're also doing that um, as well. We're punching up, uh, above our weight when uh, I've already touched on some of the digital and content ideas that we develop but our kit launches are almost becoming now like in fact our last kit launch somebody did quote on social media that uh, the saints kit launches are becoming like the john lewis christmas ad they're becoming just moments in time when it just galvanizes all football fans and for us to be able to do that is pretty extraordinary i think in testament to our creativity and our innovation but even when we think even, you know, we, a few years ago, we took the decision to do, right, actually, how do we utilise St Mary's as a stadium more on non-match days? And we decided to, to start doing concerts. And within a year, we'd had, uh, or two years, we'd had Take That and Robbie Williams and the Rolling Stones. And that's, that's pretty extraordinary from a, pretty, from a fairly standing start, really, of uh, not having done a concert in the stadium for, I think it was over 10 years. So I think in many ways, we do surprise people. We just go about our business and we're pretty down to earth. We try not to take ourselves too seriously, but describe it as a club that we're a really nice club, but with bite. We've got, a, we've got something underneath the, underneath the bonnet, which is yeah, surprising. Yeah. I've always felt that as a fan, actually, is that you can never, ever write us off against any club on our day. We'll take it to anyone. I remember being at the League Cup final at Wembley. Sadly, we lost 3-2 to Man United, but... 
even the Man U fans were like, fair play, you probably should have won that. It was only Ibrahimovic, I think, in the 87th minute that just did a wonder header that, like... And that was never offside, that Gabbiadini goal. I know, I know. But what I remember from that day, which is lovely, was I was actually in the Man United end because we we had a box. And unfortunately for me, I had had to go in plain clothes because they wouldn't let you in the boxes wearing team colours because they couldn't guarantee wearing the same you were. And I was right in the middle of the Man U fan. So it was a bit awkward. But all I heard the whole game was, was our fans from the other end. We were doing 10 times the decibels. Everyone was in the colours. And even though we lost, we were still partying. It was incredible. But the the difference in feel for us as a club compared to the Man U fans, which were hardly wearing the colours, they were very downbeat, very critical of what was happening on the pitch. It was just so stark, really. I'll, I'll never forget it. But Yeah, I think I, I, I'd echo that. I was, it was blown away, really, by that experience. And But again, it's probably down to the fact that it doesn't, doesn't come around that often, no. <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so our fans really did make the most of it and arguably man you are fairly fairly man you fans are fairly accustomed to it but no it really was an extraordinary day wasn't it it was i met my daughter daddy can we go back every year <laughs> assuming this is normal kind of thing so uh, said of course we can <laughs> that would be good so i'd love to press in on the challenger point as well because what i mean you talked about some of the innovations and and you know, ethic what else do you think has made Southampton a real challenger club do you think in terms of what I what advice would you give if someone's listening and they're a brand or they're trying to challenge in their category what can they take from Southampton as inspiration really that kind of allows I say you I'm going to say us as well because being a fan allows us to punch above our weight in this way well I'd I'd really put it down to um, we've touched on it slightly the importance of, of, of strategy but we are we have a really clear sense at Saints of who we are and what we stand for. And yeah, we've, we call it the Southampton way, but really that's a, a catch-all for our overall club strategy. And, and that starts with what we call our values and, and our beliefs. And you know, our, our values are of respect and unity and aspiration, innovation and discipline. And they are at the bedrock of everything that, that we do. And every single person in the club can pretty much recount those. Uh, and they're genuinely not just things that we've, we stick on the wall and don't, don't live by. We genuinely hold each other to account against those values. And it drives our behaviours and what, and what we do every day. And, and then we have what we call our beliefs, which are things like, OK, we play in the right way on and off the pitch, which is just really important for us about doing the right thing. We're all about developing talent, and but we're also really forward thinking and we never stop. And for us, as a club, we're, we're never going to be the, the biggest football club in, in England, but we can have an ambition to be one of the smartest and outthinking the competition on and off the pitch is really important for us. And we do that by reverting back to those values. And innovation in particular is one of those ones where we just go, okay, we're just going to need to think better and be more creative. And that drives and inspires everybody. And ultimately, that what then ladders up to is our, what we call our, our purpose, our, our mission, our reason for, exi- for existing really is all about turning for, um, potential into excellence. That's what we talk about. And that's people will know us as a club for our academy and for developing young footballing talent. But we really want every single person in the club to feel 
that they can achieve their excellence here and realize their, their full potential. And I think if you've got a really clear sense of your effectively your brand and what you stand for and where you're heading and where you're going, then that really allows you to not worry too much about other what everybody else is doing. Just do your thing and do it real do it better than anybody else and you will be successful and you'll be able to challenge. That is wonderful advice. I'm particularly struck actually in terms of what you say about values. I mean, I've worked for quite a number of businesses over the years and every one of them has had values, but only a couple have lived the values. And it's been very interesting to see. And I, I can probably correlate the most successful points in my career or the business I work for. It's when those values are actually real rather than just in the annual you know, review document that you dust off just in every six months or so, but you can almost feel it. And there are so many tangible evidence. So I think people underestimate because values can feel like a an academic exercise if they're not real, but if they're actually lived, they can be hugely powerful. Well, as, a, as an example, these our values were developed a number of years ago on the back of adversity, really, for those that aren't familiar with with the sort of history of saints we unfortunately we went into administration a few years ago and we were relegated and then relegated again and then we won back-to-back promotions back to the Premier League and that was a really I wasn't uh, here at the club at the time but from what I understand it was a brutal period getting relegated twice and when we got back to the league to the Premier League that's when we started to really galvanize and go okay how do we get here how do we get back And actually, it was then that the values were defined by the staff, not by a branding agency. The staff came up with those words. And so they were born out from within and they really represent the soul in essence of uh, and the DNA of what we're all about. These genuinely are not words just stuck on a wall or go to the bottom drawer. Do you know what you touched on something else that I think is enormously powerful, which is adversity and challenge, isn't it? Because it really makes people and businesses, we can go two ways. I think adversity can either crush you or it can make you. And, And I think what's fascinating looking over at the last few weeks of COVID is it will be the making of some businesses. There will be businesses that will just come out of it leaner, stronger, more determined, more certain of who they are. There'll be other businesses that will just crumble. And, and I think it's, it, it's, it's definitely a truism, isn't it, that your constraints that you experience as a business actually can force you into innovation, can force you to create those values, can force you to be clear about your strategy and what you stand for. Yeah, 100%. And therefore, that's why it's actually been really handy that, that one of our values is innovation, because yeah. that we've really had to fall back on that and really think every every team within the whole within the club and I don't mean football team all of the different commercial teams all of the different coaching teams all of the different support services teams they've all had to think differently about how they operate on a day-to-day level and that's been it's been a challenge but it's been in many ways invigorating because people have really felt released and felt that actually they've been given the opportunity to to try new things and if you have a culture that celebrates that and doesn't punish failure then actually hopefully yeah our staff have really enjoyed the period although it has been certainly very difficult and challenging yeah. it's interesting i interviewed mark evans who's the, the sort of marketing director ceo of direct line just after covid started and he was saying actually they've achieved some of their their record ever employee engagement surveys because they've had to 
communicate. They've had to overinvest in that, in supporting people and giving back to the local communities where their offices are. And that's been rewarded. And I think that's one of the blessings, if you can call it a blessing from COVID. I know that there's been a huge tragedy and challenge and we shouldn't underestimate that. But there are some positives to come out of it, which have been things like that. We're now connecting with humanity again. We're now thinking more about our community. We're now caring about people's well-being in a way that maybe we didn't before. Yeah, tremendous. interestingly, we, we, and we've seen exactly the same. We have something that we call our score survey, and that's our, our ongoing annual yeah, staff temperature check, really. And yeah. we've seen exactly the same uh, kind of response coming through, which is really encouraging. Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. You touched there on the academy. I, I, I might be wrong, but I have a feeling that when we were in League One, James Ward-Prowse might have made his first team debut. I'm, think, I'm trying to think back now. And now he's literally captaining the team and man of the match last. I'm just thinking about that journey from the last sort of six or seven years. He would be the epitome of a player that has come up through the ranks made his debut in the lower leagues and now he's I think in fact my daughter Tramley showed me the oh it's a sky thing she gets with player points on and he's currently top of the Premier League in terms of points per player for his performances I'll need to check where that's from but uh, yeah she was very proud go look Prowse is top of the league yeah again, again if you, we touched on it on, on it before but I think if we could personify the the Southampton way then you know James yeah. is absolutely that no yeah, he's just such a a humble intelligent bright nice guy but put him on a football pitch and i tell you what you wouldn't want to be tackled by him yeah totally devastatingly effective or face a free kick i know Uh, it's yeah he's got the skill of beckham but without all that celebrity noise that kind of gets in the way doesn't it like a secret weapon yeah Absolutely awesome. But the academy, I remember I remember meeting Steve Vaughan, who was the, the, the academy coach years and years ago, back in the day when you had the likes of Thea Walcott, Gareth Bale, those Andrew Sermon, those kind of players coming through. It was a real golden era. And and a lot of the a lot of the academy players are now playing on the world stage, top of the Premier League. It's exciting. And I guess a, a rather romantic kind of fairy tale of Theo coming back as well. In the last couple of weeks, how's that all gone down? Yeah, it, it, it's been great. It's been obviously it's such a again another uh, cut from the same cloth as, as as James really. Just in terms of such a, a, a nice guy, humble guy, but just incredibly talented. And yeah, it's been great to have him back. And actually sat with him for the match against Everton a couple of weeks ago oh, uh, where of course he couldn't play but he so, couldn't well, exactly <laughs> so, so yes yeah, so it was quite interesting to watch it to observe him in at the games yeah, yeah with torn loyalties I think I bet, but, I bet. I, but he, he's one of those game-changing players isn't he but I also want to chat to you quickly about the, the women's game as well lovely to see the energy that's going into the women's game the coverage it's starting to get the embrace again as a dad with two daughters I've got some vested interest in this as well so what are, what are the Saints doing to support that yeah great and we've done a huge amount in this space really over the last few years so um i'm not sure if everyone's familiar with how the the women's um game is is structured but as as with the 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 men's game there's there's a number of tierings and obviously the top two tiers so the first is the women's super league in and the fa women's championship so that's one and two we're currently in tier four so the the fa women's national league Two years ago, we were in tier six. So what we're we're absolutely on a journey to reach the championship and ho- hopefully, ultimately, the, the the women's super league. But I think again, that points to us doing it 
the Southampton way, doing it the authentic way, not buying ourselves straight in at, at, at the top. That's not what we do. We don't. We develop our own talent and and progress like that. And frustratingly, we would have actually been in uh, tier three this year had the the women's league not been suspended because of COVID. So we were actually we were on top of the league, ready for. We'd had back to back promotions. We were we were ready for the third promotion, and and unfortunately we 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 had to then go back. But we're we're currently sitting top of tier four, top of the league. But I think when you talk about the sort of investment and support of the game, so we were really keen as a club that if we're going to really get behind the the women's game, then we're going to do it properly. Uh, And they should have the same facilities and same support structures as the, the, the men's game. And we've invested heavily in that. But also we've brought in so our, our lead coach is Marianne Spacey Kale, who's one of the most one of the biggest names in the women's game actually. So played for Arsenal and Fulham, but I think it had ninety one in England caps and was latterly coaching within the England team setup. And Marianne came to us. She could have gone anywhere really, but she came to us from the FA teaching the national teams, coaching the national teams. Into, at that point, we were in Tier 6. But she came to us because of the vision and the journey and the strategy that we've got. Uh, and she's going to help us realise that. And as I say, we've had back-to-back promotions since. So we're on a really interesting journey. It's really exciting. And we're trying to support that as, as much as we can. And one of the good things is that St Mary's has been selected as one of the venues for the Women's Euros uh, in 2022. In terms of how we're helping to actively promote the game and that's just obviously going to be fantastic to encourage people to watch the game to participate in the game and yeah hopefully those that team can become real role models for that oh fantastic no, that's, that's really exciting to watch that um, and I know my daughter Emily would be very pleased as well because she's a big fan <laughs> I wanted to also to touch on talking about a difference that a club can make and obviously this year as well as we've had the challenge of COVID there's been a big light shone on kind of racism in I guess in society in general but also in sport how do you so how have you as a club or how has we as a club tackled that and are you seeing progress being made on that front as from your perspective yeah, I think it's obviously it's a huge issue, not just for our club, but for, for, for football as a whole. And I guess the way that we've approached it is for us, ensuring equality and diversity, not just for, for racial equality, but across all, all the uh, spectrums that would cover. So fair tra- treatment for, for women, for, for those with disabilities, for those with different sexual orientations or different faiths. That it's really important for us as a club to recognise that everybody's different, and to again, one of our one of our core values is respect, and we need to respect everybody. And this is everyone's game that everyone should be able to enjoy equally. We've actually this year been on a, for a number of years. Uh, we've been on a journey, but we've seen the the sort of accumulation of that journey has led to us being awarded the advanced standard within the Premier League equality standards. So we're actually, there's a really rigorous process that we've uh, had to go through to demonstrate what we're doing to support people of, of all different aspects within equality and diversity. And I believe we're the first club to have been awarded to achieve the highest standard at the, at the first time of submission. So yeah, so uh, that sort of answers your question on a wider scale. But for us, this isn't just about racism, although clearly there's no room for that 
at all in society or within the game uh, and we we have a very hard line against it with if there's any we have zero tolerance obviously uh, if we see it and, and within the stadium or within our fan base that's brilliant so listen as I, I thought I'd end with trying to get a few predictions off you so as we sit here today we're fifth in the league we <coughs> maybe first anyway we won't talk about that because that'll jinx if you would you take fifth today if you could stick or twist, so if, if you could take fifth today, would you take fifth today? Wow, that's a that's a question. I would have to say yes, and that that would obviously be obviously because of the the benefit of that as well as it it's Europe. And we had a three years ago, we had a brilliant uh, run in Europe in the Europa League, very memorable evening beating Inter Milan at, at St Mary's. I'm not sure if you were here, but just what what a what a time that was. And then seeing Saints fans all in the middle of uh, Milan when we went over there, what a, what an experience! And you just can't it adds a whole new that. dimension to the season. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So 100%, I take fifth. Our vision, we we talked about our club mission and purpose. Our, our vision is to is to challenge for the top six every season. And we talk about as being a challenger brand. That's We've got challenge written into our vision every year. That's what we're striving for. And so fifth would absolutely do me fine. So top six or FA Cup final? Oh, no. That's a, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I would... Well, that, that's a tough one. I would... I'm going to give you an ambiguous answer. I'm going to get, if I if I was voting with my head, I'd go top six because of Europe. That's my commercial hat on. Uh, going okay, that's six matches commercially, that would be phenomenal for us. If I'm voting with my heart, I might go cup final because of what we touched on earlier, which was just that experience of being in Wembley a few years ago, being in the it was a League Cup final, but our one major piece of silverware is, uh, goes back to winning the FA Cup. So we have a, a, a special place in our heart for the FA it's Cup. It's true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, very true. And, and we came close, of course. I forget which year. We're, we're FA Cup final versus Arsenal. Which year was that? Because we, we came close, didn't we? Um, yeah, it was 2003, was it? Gosh, yeah, because I, yeah, I, 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 I was in a, a really crowded pub downtown in Southampton. And there was, of course, there had to be one Arsenal fan that forced his way in and sat right at the front. And I can't, oh, what, did we lose that in the last five minutes? I can't remember now. I'll have to look it up. But I remember we played really well, as we always do, really went toe to toe. And then I think we lost it in the dying. But And then you just, the entire, you know, 200 of us went really quiet. And then there's just this one Arsenal fan that stood on the table. Anyway, I remember that one. But... Uh, <laughs> All right. Now, that's been fantastic, David. Thank you so much. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And uh, thanks for for taking the time out. You're more than welcome. Yeah, it's it's been great to chat. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you for listening to the Uncensored CMO. I really appreciate it. Now, do me a favor. Please do leave me a review. Do subscribe as well so you get notified for any upcoming podcasts. And just so you know, next up is Rory Sutherland, author of Alchemy, a genuinely fascinating conversation between me and Rory. You won't want to miss it. So look forward to that. Thanks for listening.